0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel Rochester. We're in First Timothy chapter four, and we've been kind of going through that. Uh, we we were going through the Old Testament, and uh, we we're just taking a break, and we went back to the New Testament, and then we'll go back and uh, I'm trying to get all the way through the uh, the uh, Old Testament here. Uh, we've gone all the way from Genesis up to uh, uh, Amos was the last chapter, right? It was Amos or Hosea. Hosea. I should know this. Life. Uh, but anyways, yeah. So, but 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to pick it up at verse 12 is where we left off last week. And so here, Paul is talking to Timothy. And uh, trying to encourage Timothy, that's what this letter is. It's a letter of encouragement. Now, people say this is the pastoral epistle, or one of the pastoral epistles, which is true, it is. But it is specifically written to encourage Timothy, and to kind of give Timothy some instruction as Timothy is, is pastoring the church there in Ephesus, the church that Paul founded. And so he says there in verse 12, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Now, Timothy was a young man. We know from the from the book of Acts, and uh, he had uh, come to faith in the Lord at some point. Uh, he was raised by a godly mother and a godly grandmother, and uh, at some point. Paul took Timothy along with him on his missionary journeys. And so up until the time of this letter, uh, Timothy had already been traveling with Paul for about 15 years. So depending on what age he left his home to go travel with uh, Paul, 15 years later, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. And some commentators, most people believe that Timothy was somewhere around 23 to 40 years old. So you might say 40 years old doesn't seem like a youth. Well, it's all relative, right? If you're 65, then 40 seems pretty young. You know, if you're 50, 45 doesn't seem that young. If you're 45, it doesn't seem young. <laughs> Anyways, um, we know that Timothy was younger than the Apostle Paul, and evidently, and probably so as in with any church, uh, Timothy was probably younger than many of the men that he was ministering to as a pastor. Now, you got to kind of understand where Timothy's at right now he didn't found the church in Ephesus Paul did and so Paul is going traveling on his missionary journeys and he's left Timothy there to kind of just kind of take care of the church to shepherd the church there in Ephesus and so if you think about it can you imagine uh put yourself in the boots of Timothy you're coming to fill in for the mm-hmm. Apostle Paul. I mean, it's like somebody asking me to fill in for Billy Graham in one of his crusades and be like, what, me? You know, you can just imagine how Timothy must have felt, a young guy being kind of thrown to the wolves, so to speak, with people that were despising him because he's just a young kid at maybe 40 years old. Um, those were big shoes to fill, uh, and you know, and, and I've known some Calvary Chapel pastors that have uh, filled in or not filled in, but they've taken over after the founding pastors left the church for whatever reason. Uh, sometimes good, sometimes not good, but whatever reason. And it is the most difficult ministry typically for these pastors because you know you're used to a certain kind of a pastor. They teach a certain way. They got certain mannerisms. They do things a certain way, and then you get a new guy in, and the new guy does things. Nah, a little bit different. Not necessarily wrong, but you're uncomfortable. And it's really a struggle. And sometimes people leave the church because they're so attached to that first pastor that it's hard for them to, to kind of adjust to a new pastor. So this is what Timothy was facing in Ephesus. Um, and uh, and so he's you know he's also leading some older Christians, and it probably made it difficult for Timothy. And apparently Timothy wanted to leave Ephesus. In fact, that's why... Paul writes this letter to Timothy to encourage him to stay in Ephesus. Stick with it. You may feel like wanting to leave, but stay with it. And so Paul here in in, uh, this verse here says, Don't Mm -hmm. let anyone despise your youth. Now how do you not let anyone despise? I mean, how do you actually tell someone, Hey, don't despise my youth, you know? Um, Well, it's not by getting in their face or by demanding respect, but Paul says to earn it basically by your example. Don't let them despise your youth, but set an example for the people that you're ministering to. That word "example" is the word "tupos," and it means a pattern to be imitated. It also means, which I found interesting, a figure formed by a blow or an impression. You know, when you when you hit something with a hammer, um, I we we just put together these wooden. Uh, bookcases because we just moved to a new house and we're setting up my office and and uh, got these bookcases and they got these little uh, you know where you have this in the, the screw holes the recessed screw holes you got these little. Uh, uh, plugs like that you kind of just caps like that you stick on there in their wood and Teresa was being really careful with the wooden mallet you know or the rubber mallet you know, tapping them in and some of them just weren't going in and when she wasn't in the room I grabbed a regular hammer and I'm like I'm gonna get those guys in there and so I'm banging on it, and, and all of a sudden I'm looking I'm like oh I hope she doesn't see that <laughs> you know it's like now there's a mar on there you know it's like uh-oh um whoops well we'll paint over it we'll make it look good um but that's that's what that word means. It's it's a mar left on something from a blow. And and really, if you think of it in this term, really what he's saying to them is to make an impression or leave an impression on the people that you're follow, or that are that you're pastoring. Be a pattern for them to example how, by your word. First of all, what you say, and probably also how you say it. Um, you know, it's, an, it's something I always have to learn. I, I say things, but sometimes I have to be careful how I say it, because it can, can get, uh, you know, how, how you say things sometimes can be taken the wrong way. So what you say, how you say it, but also by your conduct. How you live your life day to day. You know, how, how are you outside of the pulpit or, or away from church as, you know, out in the public or, or in the evenings or when you're around by yourself? How do you conduct yourself? It's, it's constantly around the clock. How do, you conduct, how do you conduct yourself? How do you love by your love? How do you express? And that word love there is the agape love. And if you know agape love, that, that means loving even somebody who's unlovable. That means loving without expecting any love back in return. It's the highest form of love. And so, are you? Are you setting example by your love, um, by your spirit? How are you filled by and led by the spirit, or are you constantly being uh, acting out of the flesh? Your faith now—not only your faith in Christ, uh, not only are you walking by faith, not only are you a man or a woman of faith, but are you a faithful man or woman? That all—that all figures into that. And then finally, your purity. And, of course, the word means moral purity, but it also implies being pure in your motives. You're not having ulterior motives. You're not, you know, not ministering out of love and, and honesty to people. You know, as Paul would tell the Corinthians in Second Corinthians 3, 2, he wrote to them, he says, You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. And, and we all, because this is a letter to Timothy, a pastor, but really it applies to all of us here. And you and I, we are living epistles. You know, you may end up being the only Bible that your coworker or your friend or your relative reads. They're not, they, they, don't want to, they could care less about reading scriptures. But they're looking at you and they're, they're looking at me and they're reading Christ in us. And so we want to set an example to those around us. Verse 13, he says, "...till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine." In that word, to reading, it literally means public reading of Scripture. But notice he also mentions exhortation and doctrine. See, the teaching, the public reading is accompanied with exhortation, and that really means comfort or encouragement, and then doctrine, or, or teaching, it's exactly what's taking place here this morning. We're reading the scriptures, and we're learning from it, and I'm trying to encourage you, and, 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 and give you some comfort, and, and uh, trying to teach along, along with that. That's exactly what's taking place here this morning, and that's what Paul is trying to remind Timothy. Timothy, keep doing these things. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Now, the Holy Spirit evidently had bestowed on Timothy the gift of teaching. Um, And the elders there had recognized God's calling on Timothy's life, and so he was ordained. "...by the utterance of prophecy and the laying, ha- laying on of hands of the elders." And Paul here is reminding Timothy, he says, Timothy, remember that time. He says, don't neglect that gift that's in you. Now the Scriptures teaches that each and every believer, not just charismatic believers, but each and every believer has been given gifts by the Holy Spirit. In many cases, more than one gift. And there are various gifts. It's Paul wrote in, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse four, he says, "There are diversity of gifts, but the same spirit, there are diversity of ministries or differences of ministries, but the same Lord, and there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in, in all, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all." So whether you believe it or not, the Holy Spirit's given you uh, spiritual gifts. And Paul is reminding Timothy here that, you know, don't neglect those gifts. Now, the fact that Paul would even say that, hey, Timothy, don't neglect the gift that is in you. Evidently, what that means or what that implies is that an individual can neglect their spiritual gifts. They can wind up being like that unfaithful servant. Remember Jesus told the parable of the talents? And the one servant, you know, he, he, he received his talent. And what did he do? He buried it in the ground. He didn't use it. He kept it, but he didn't use it. And then, then at the time of accounting, the time of reckoning, he was rebuked. He was, he was an unfaithful servant. He was a wicked servant because he didn't use that, what, what God had given him. And, uh, you know, there are many people that may have a saved soul, but they've wasted their life because they haven't been using the gifts that God has given them for the edification of the church. Verse 15, he says, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So he says, meditate on these things. On what things? Well, not only his calling and his ministry that Paul just reminded him of, Not only Paul's instructions to him, because this letter, there's a lot of instructions in this letter, but also on the scriptures. Meditate. Turn these things over and over in your mind. That's what it means to meditate. To always be thinking of them, to always be conscious of these things. And then he says, give yourself entirely to them. In other words, devote yourself to these things Occupy yourself with these things. Let your heart be in these things. I mean, just pour yourself into it. He says that your progress may be evident to all. You know, we want people to see growth in our lives. Um, And then he says, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. So he says, take heed to yourselves. Really, you know, what he's talking about is taking stock of where we are in the Lord. Of where we are in, in line with Scripture. That's what we need to do periodically, frequently. We are to examine our hearts, and then we're to ask ourselves: You know, am I, am I less devoted to the things of the Lord this morning than I was, say, a year ago? Or, you know, am I less in love with the Lord than I was a year ago? You know, later on, the church in Ephesus—that's going to be one of their things that the Lord Jesus talks to them about in the Book of Revelation. But you do all—you do all these things. You, you know, you, you, you guys, you, you watch out for false teaching and all this stuff, but you've left your first love. So we have to ask myself, man, do, I, do I love the Lord Jesus as much today as I did before? Have I neglected the gift that is in within me? And, you know, and, and of course, if we answer yes to any one of those questions, then really, we have to be frank about it, we're backslidden. You know, you, you, there's no standing still in your relationship with the Lord. You're either growing or you're not growing. And if you're not growing, you're backsliding. And in that case, you need to repent and turn back. You need a course correction. We all need course corrections because we drift. He says, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. You know, Timothy, this stuff is not just for those you're ministering to, but you need to apply it in your own life. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He says, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So it all ties together. It's not just what we say, but what we do. Our character. Well, moving on into chapter 5. Now Paul is going to give Timothy some more instruction. And really, this instruction, it applies to every church, but it's, of course, specifically given to the church in Ephesus there. But Paul says to Timothy in verse 1, he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. That word rebuke means to strike upon, to beat upon. Now, he's not saying, you know, don't beat upon these elders. But what he's referring to is to not beat upon them verbally. Not to give them a verbal beating or a tongue lashing. You know, not to chastise with words or to chide them or to upbraid them. Don't verbally ch- chastise an older man, but exhort him as a father. Yeah, you, you know, treat him with respect. And then he says, treat the younger men as brothers. Because, you know, we all kind of put ourselves... In a place, you know, in our own minds, we look at some people around us and we go, well, they're less spiritual than me or less mature than me. They're more mature. And we always always kind of, we look at people and we kind of, where do I fit in with people? And it's easy even for a younger person to look to someone who's younger than them and to despise them and despise their youth. And so Paul's telling Timothy, hey, don't let people despise your youth, but don't you despise someone else's youth either, Timothy, because you're going to be ministering to guys that are younger than you, too. And then he says, Treat the older woman as mothers, the younger woman as sisters, with all purity. Now Timothy evidently was single, and as a younger man, he was subject to the temptations of youth. Why do I say that? Because in Paul's next letter, 2 Timothy, which was written later, Timothy even then, or Paul even then tells Timothy, Flee youthful lusts. What if a wonderful way it would be to treat others in the body of Christ with love, with respect, and with purity, right? We look at the older people in our fellowship, and we treat them as our parents, with that respect that we give our own parents. And the younger ones, instead of looking down on them, we treat them as brothers and sisters. And then the members of opposite sex, man, they're my siblings. That's my brother. That's my sister. You know, they're not an object. They're, 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 they're my, that's my, my brother or my sister, what a wonderful way if, if churches would treat each other. You know, people in the church would treat each other that way. Verse 3. Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now, evidently, in the early years of the church, there were many widows. Um, you know, it's interesting. A, a year ago... I think it's been actually a little bit more than a year ago. I was going through all these tests at Mayo Clinic. Well, Mayo Clinic and then later on at Olmsted. But at Mayo Clinic, I remember, you know, there's so many, and you guys all know this, um, but, you know, you walk around and there's so many people during the weekdays, you know, from all over walks of life going to their different doctor appointments. And one thing that I observed, and I don't know, it's not a scientific study, but my own observations, I was amazed at how many... Older women there were who were wheeling around their, their infirmed husbands that were older, you know, going from appointment to appointment. It seemed like there were more older women wheeling around their husbands than the other way around. And again, I, I don't know if that's a fact or not, but it's just something that I observed. And uh, I think back to this time here that Paul is writing this to Timothy. You know, men were probably the primary breadwinners of the, in, in the homes in those days. There was no OSHA in those days, right? Uh, Health care was not like today. And so as a result, there probably were a lot of guys that would die. They'd get sick and die, or they get hurt on, the, hurt on the job, and they, you know, they'd die. And so there was a, a lot of widows in that day. And there were no welfare programs. There was no financial aid systems. There's no life insurance. You think about it. A person in that time, in that day and age, could become destitute overnight, Their husband dies, and that's it. Uh, And so it's interesting that even back then, the church recognized their responsibility to minister to these individuals. Why? Because God had put that on their hearts. The Christians in the community, they had Jesus' heart. They had compassion on the poor, and so they started ministering to them. But like I said, there were many widows. In fact, in Acts 6, we read that there were so many widows being taken care of the church that the, the apostles, they were overwhelmed by the amount of ministry. It was getting to the point where that's all they were doing was ministering to the widows. And some of the widows were feeling like they were being neglected. And so, you know, the apostles at that point said, man, we need to raise up some other people. We need help. And so the church appointed deacons and selected them to assist in the ministry. So there were many, many widows. But what Paul is trying to get across to Timothy, you know, there are many widows, but their circumstances and the extent of their need varies. And that's what he's trying to explain to, to uh, Timothy. So Paul instructs Timothy to help those who are really widows. <laughs> you go, well, well what's, you know, you're either a widow or you're not a widow, right? So what's a really a, really a widow? <laughs> i starting to talk like Elmer Fudd, a willy widow. But, um, you know, although a woman may be widowed, it didn't necessarily mean she needed to be supported financially by the church. And this is what Paul is trying to get across to Timothy especially if the widow had children or grandchildren that were believers. Paul says, let them, and he's talking about the children or grandchildren, show piety at home to their uh, and to repay their parents. He's just talking about taking care of your parents in their old age, and that it's good and it's acceptable before God. Whereas if you neglect them, it's bad and it's unacceptable before God. Verse 5, Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So a true widow uh, in the sense of one who qualifies for support from the church, that widow truly is alone. She doesn't have children. She doesn't have grandchildren, or at least not believing children or believing grandchildren. Why do I say that? Because, you know, although... All children ought to take care of their aging parents regardless of whether they are believers or not. The reality is that many unbelieving children could care less about showing piety. Let's face it, you know. Um, And the possibility existed, you think about it, in this day and age, the day and age when the book of of, uh, Timothy was written, a lot of Gentiles were idol worshipers and they were coming faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul is writing about divorce and marriage and, you know, and how, do you, how, do, how do wives you know, deal with an unbelieving husband. Why? Because there were so many of them. There were so many split families then because there was all these Gentiles that were getting saved and not everyone in the family was getting saved. And so in those early days, there may have been many converts to Christianity, but there were also many split marriages and split families as a result of that. It's still that way today. It hasn't changed, right? Some of you, you've come to faith in the Lord and your spouse hasn't or your children haven't. And you know that tension that's there in in marriages and in families. So the true widow has no family to take care of them, uh, to take care of her. And says so she she's alone and she trusts in God to meet her needs. And look at that. She prays night and day. Think about that. You know, during the daylight, and I'm just... I don't know because I'm not in that situation, but during the daylight, you're busy with activities, right? There's things to do in the daytime. Maybe there's people, you know, you're going out in the community, so you're surrounded by people or there are people around your home or whatever. But at night, in the quiet and the darkness, that's when the loneliness, I would imagine, is magnified. And Some of you can probably attest to that, that have gone through that. You know, during that time when when there's nobody around, that's when the loneliness, that's when the quiet, that's when it really sinks in, I am alone. Paul says, during that time, pray. The widow that's in that situation, man, she's praying night and day. I've shared with you before, you know, it's funny. Well, it's not funny. It's funny now, but it's not funny when it happens. But sometimes in the middle of the night, I'll wake up with just anxiety. And I'm just like, over the stupidest things. I, got a, I have this one bill that I pay in the middle of the month, and I got a little payment booklet, and I'm like, oh, I forgot to pay that bill. I'm going to have a $6 charge, and I couldn't sleep that night because I'm all agonizing over this stupid little bill, you know. I get up the next morning and check in. No, I paid it. <laughs> it's, it's not a problem. But I go through these things. I, I can't explain it, but I have these anxious thoughts at night. And, you know, during those times, rather than despairing, the best thing you and I can do is to pray and, and, and sometimes it's a spiritual attack, but other times maybe I just ate something that's not agreeing with me or I watched a movie that kind of freaked me out or something, you know, or whatever. Um, but it's in this quiet and the stillness of the night when you and I, you know, those are the times when we can hear the Lord better too. We're just getting alone with Him. Because when we're busy during the daytime, it's hard to hear the Lord. You know, we've got everything's occupying us and filling our, filling our heads and stuff. So it's, it's in those times when men, what a, what a, what, there's not a better time than to spend time in prayer than those times at night. Verse 6, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Now I think what Paul is saying here is the widow who instead of trusting God to meet her needs, instead of being in prayer night and day, instead she's chasing after the pleasures of the world. And Paul basically is saying, hey, she may be alive, but man, she's pursuing emptiness. She may be physically alive, but man, she's spiritually dead. You know, this is true not only of widows, but everybody. If you're pursuing, if you're pursuing, you know, pleasures, man, you're, you're, you're like the walking dead. It's amazing. I, I get phone calls. Now, we used to have just an answering service and I would just have messages, and then I'd have to go, manually go, and I'd, I'd have to go dial into this number and listen to the church messages, and invariably I'd miss a lot of messages. So I switched not about a year or so ago and had all those messages come straight to my phone. Oh, I love it, because now I don't miss any calls. But with that, I get a lot of calls from solicitors, you know, wanting to sell us stuff here at the church. I also get a lot of calls from people who, you know, you start talking to them, and after just a short period of time, I've been able to discern, they've been living their lives chasing after pleasures. They've been doing their own thing, going on their own apart from Christ, and now all of a sudden a hard time hits, and they expect the church, because that's what churches do, to give them money. And so I get a lot of, a lot of calls asking for money. Um, and, uh, you know, I used to <laughs> agonize over those calls when I, we were starting out the ministry. I was like, everybody that called, I was like, oh, man, I, I feel like I need to do something to help this person. Well, um, I don't agonize over those calls anymore. Um, I, I've prayed for discernment. I, I, you know, I've learned to say in situations, of course, I deal with each one individually, but I've learned to say it's okay to say no to those who, you know, they've just lived their lives doing their own thing, and now all of a sudden they expect the church to, to bail them out from something. I think it's okay to say no in those cases. Verse 7. And these things command that they may be blameless... But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now here Paul is addressing the believing children and grandchildren who have old and destitute parents. If they don't provide for their own household, Paul says they've denied their faith. Why? Well, because we are to have the heart of the Lord. We're to have a heart of compassion, a heart of benevolence towards people. And they're worse than an unbeliever. Why does he say that? Because even some of them, unbelievers, respect their parents and love them enough to take care of them. You know, it's it's really sad when the world behaves better than believers do. I mean, what a terrible thing, and yet that happens. Sometimes the world treats their families better than Christians do. Now, the context here is widows... And they're believing and unbelieving children. But I think it extends, of course, to all members of the Christian family. If you're a husband, you should be providing, a Christian husband especially, you should be providing for the needs of your family. And if you're not, you're worse than an unbeliever. And there's a lot of people that would rather just leave it up to the church to pick up the slack. And apparently this is what was happening there in Paul's day, in Timothy's day. And so Paul's basically telling Timothy, Timothy, let's just minister to those who truly are in need. And so how do you do that? And so he's trying to explain to Timothy, well, this is the criteria you use. So verse 9, he says, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. So here's one of the criterias: Don't let a widow be under 60 years under 60 years be taken into the number. What's the number? The number is the roster of those who are being taken care of by the church. Paul tells Timothy they must be at least 60 years old. Presumably, I would think a younger widow, they can still either provide for themselves, or uh, they can remarry and be provided for. So that's one of the criterias. She should be the wife of one man. Not that she had to have been only married once, but you need to understand in this culture, polygamy was was just rampant in that culture. So she needed to be the wife of one man. She needed to be well reported for good works. In other words, she had a good reputation. It says if she has brought up children... Lodge strangers, wash the saints' feet, relieve the afflicted diligently, and followed every or relieve the diligent. Excuse me, relieve the afflicted diligently and followed every good work. Isn't this amazing? You look at this list. He's speaking about a mother with children, a mother with children who not only is raising children, but she's lodging strangers, she's washing the saints' feet, she's relieving the afflicted, and she's diligently following every good work. Can you imagine? You know, uh, apparently there were women who not only raised children, but they had time to do all these other things. (laughs) And I don't want anybody throwing anything at me right now, but... (laughs) You know, maybe they were not necessarily all simultaneously. You did all this at the same time. Although I'll be I'll be honest with you, I've watched my wife. You know, we're watching grandchildren, and, and we're also trying to do stuff in our new home, and and. Uh, I see, I come in the kitchen just this last week, and there's little Jonathan sitting on a counter eating some fruit or something. There's Thor on the floor over there eating something. There's Catherine over there eating something. And they're all just sitting there while Teresa's doing stuff in the kitchen. I'm I'm like, wow, how did you do that? She goes, I just told him, you stay there, you know. She goes, and Jonathan, when he's on the counter, he doesn't move. He just stays there. So... I, it just amazes me, because when I get the kids, they're like all over the place. They're like, you know, one of them's running down the street, talking to the neighbors, and it's just like chaos. Um, so it is possible, and my wife's a living testimony, that it is possible to do more than one thing simultaneously. But maybe, that, maybe this wasn't all simultaneously. Um, but I do think we need to look at this, because it's true, if you and I are married... Of course, Jesus is our first priority, always. But after Jesus, your spouse is your first ministry. And then if you also have children, they're your second ministry after your spouse. Now, some spouses get the order reversed, and I've seen that in families, and the results are a catastrophe. Some parents, they just focus on the children and they neglect their spouse. It's a tragic thing to see, because it's not a healthy marriage. But children are not to be your only ministry. I mean, Paul here is describing a wife and a mother who not only ministers to her own family, but she ministers to those outside of her family as the Lord leads. And I would say that's a Proverb 31 woman right there. If you know what I'm talking about. Read Proverbs 31 if you don't. So evidently, it's possible to do more ministry than you and I think we can or feel like we can. You know, sometimes we feel like we're just, I can't give any more. I can't do any more. But you know what? God always gives the strength. He always gives the strength along with the opportunities. When he presents an opportunity with us, he gives you the strength to do it. The thing for you and I to do, and, and I struggle with this, we just need to leave our calendars and our schedules open to being adjusted by the Lord amazing, you know I, I, I can get I can get, you know, something in my mind. I'm going to do this today. I'm going I got this time to do this. This time to do this. And invariably, the Lord will bring something in there that kind of just throws everything up in upheaval. And then it's up to me. Am I going to just? Am I going to roll with the punches and just? You know, just say, okay, Lord. I guess you're reordering my day. Or I get all. Ah, I've got a terrible day because all this stuff happened, and I'm all stressed out. It's my choice how I respond to it. Well, evidently, there were women that were doing all that, amazingly. And Paul says, that, that's, that's the type of widow you should be taken care of. That's done all those things. Verse 11, But refuse the younger widows. For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation, because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. This is kind of a, a difficult one to to, uh, to to look at, but um, evidently, those who were numbered among the widows, they were the ones that were identified, they were declared widows, the tr- everybody understood that those were the ones that were supporting. And those ones they ministered in the body of Christ. And they were praying. And, and they, were, they, were doing, they were doing ministry and they were praying. And as a result, they were being taken care of by the church. And so Paul's warning Timothy not to enroll younger widows. He says, because they can grow wanton against Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, to wax wanton is, is King James. It means to remove the rein. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Well, one of the commentators said this. The metaphor is of a pampered horse... And the bitten reins have been removed from its mouth, and there is nothing to check or confine the horse. So, again, it's like, okay, so what does that mean? Well, um, what I think Paul is warning against is widows who are still relatively young, who have an opportunity to remarry. You know, they might be in in part of this group that was in this church here ministering, but they've got their minds set on husband hunting. You know, they're like, hey, he's a potential candidate. You know, uh, or they've become busybodies, and yet they're on the church payroll, and they're, they're supposedly doing ministry, but now they're, they're, their focus is off, and they're doing other things, and they're giving themselves and their ministry a bad name. So Paul says, just let the younger ones, let them wait. Take care of the older ones. Verse sixteen: If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. So here again, Paul is reiterating that the believing Christian who claim to have a relationship with Christ should be taking care of their aged, infirmed, destitute parents. And now here the rest of the rest of this chapter. Here Paul is going to switch gears. And in verse seventeen, he says, "Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wagers Now that's a principle that's plain in scriptures: uh, those who minister in the gospel uh, should be supported by the gospel." Now, that doesn't mean that they need a six-figure income, <laughs> or it doesn't mean like they need a private jet. I just heard of somebody just getting a private jet recently. Um, but they should have their needs met from the ministry. Now, having said that, I know lots of people who uh, consider themselves ministers or evangelists or musicians, whatever, and they would tell you this applies to them. And I, I, in some cases, I think it definitely does. You know, we support Sammy Tanago. Uh, He lives out in California, and uh, he's an Egyptian, uh, a Christian Egyptian, but he was a lawyer in Egypt, and he studied Sharia law. So he's well-versed in Islam. And he wrote a book, Glad News God Loves You, My Muslim Friends, and uh, and another book about love. And and he travels, I mean, nonstop, year-round. He goes all over the United States, and I, I think he goes internationally, too, and he, and he ministers to Muslims. And he also goes to churches and teaches them about how to minister to Muslims. And while he was doing all of this, he was a city employee in one of the cities in Southern California when we first met him. And he goes, yeah, he goes, my coworkers, they think I'm just, he, he was like pushing around the mail cart. In, the, in this government building, he goes. Yeah, he goes. Most of the people, they have no clue that I'm a lawyer. They have no clue that I've written a book. You know, they just think I'm just some dumb guy. You know, some dumb immigrant working. He goes. They have no idea. But he just did that, and he did that faithfully. But then he started praying. The ministry was just getting so much that I mean, that he was just spending all his time going everywhere. And so the Lord provided, and we support him financially, our church. The Lord provided a way for him to stop, to quit his job. And now he's 100% full-time doing that ministry. And God's blessing it. And, and people like that, yeah, they, they deserve the support of the church. Because that's what they're doing. They're laboring. They're spending their, their, their working hours doing this kind of ministry. Um, But I also, I know, and I won't say any names, you probably wouldn't know them anyways, but I know someone who calls himself an evangelist. And I really, to be honest with you, I don't know how much evangelism, evangelizing this person does. I don't even think he's a member of any local church. And yet he expects Christians in this community to support him. I go, wait a minute, you're not laboring? What are you doing, you know? And so it can get abused, it can get misused. Um, But I think Paul has the criteria here. He says, those who labor in the word and doctrine, you know, they are the ones that are putting in their working hours, teaching, counseling, leading. I mean, they're pouring themselves into it. They have a right to be supported by by those that they minister to. And that's what Paul is getting across. Verse 19, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses know, it's amazing. In our culture, we have people that come from different churches all the time. And, uh, and I've had some people share with me, I don't know if you want to call it sharing or gossiping, whatever, but they've shared with me, you know, their pastor from their other church, and they, 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 they just air all the dirty laundry about that person. And, uh, you know, in some cases, I'm sure the reports are true. Um, but unless I know the person who's telling me I know them. I've, I've, I've gotten to know them. I know their character. Or I know, I hear the same thing from other, other people. I've just learned, I'm just going to reserve judgment. I'm not going to receive it. I mean, I'll hear you, but I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to reserve judgment. Because a lot of times, it's just a disgruntled sheep that's gone from, you know, they've been confronted with whatever their sin is, and now that's it. They're uncomfortable. They're going to another church, and now, you know, they're at another church. And, and, uh, and sometimes people they just they just start talking and you know the thing is the enemy's plan if you want to get a church get the leader man go for the go for the person in leadership cuz that's his his way of destroying churches and i'm not i know that there's pastors out there that are you know that are not necessarily walking right with the lord and stuff so again you know i basically what i'm saying is i just i don't take it at i take it at face value okay i, I hear what you're saying but I'm like, oh, that is a bad pastor, you know, and we have to do something about it. Um, Verse 20. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. What's the context? Again, he's talking about pastors and leaders who are in front of people who are in a place of of influence. He says, rebuke those who are sinning. Now, notice he doesn't say rebuke those who have sinned in the presence of all. he says, but those who are sinning, those who are continually sinning, they have no desire, no willingness to change. They no longer have the fear of the Lord. Their willful, open, fearless disobedience, they're leading a lot of other people astray because of their place of influence. And these are the ones that Paul is saying, hey, rebuke them openly. You know, of course, I think... We're, we're taking an assumption here. We're presuming that they've already been approached in private because that's what we should be doing, right? Approaching them in private. Uh, and then maybe with two or three witnesses if they still don't hear and church leadership has already been involved. But if they're continuing after that point, they need to be rebuked openly. Uh, that He says that the rest also may fear. Not that they may fear you, Timothy, or you're the leadership, but that they would fear the Lord because this is serious business. Verse 21. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. You know how important that is for the pastor to remain impartial without prejudice as he ministers to people. Now I have to say, when it comes to ministering uh, you know, this past spring we did a we did an outreach with another with another Calvary, and and uh, I love the pastor, and I love his people. But I'll be honest with you, I'm more partial to you folks, <laughs> and I, and, I, and I and I'm more prejudiced towards you than I am to other people because they're they're just they're in another fellowship, you know. And so, um, but I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. He means within the local church itself, don't show partiality. And he says, and do not lay hands on anyone hastily. You know, for me, that was a tough, tough issue when pioneering this new work because it's like there's nobody around. You just have a few people to choose from. And so it's very tempting to appoint people too soon or out of desperation. I've learned the hard way. Just take it slow. Maybe you don't even need that ministry right now. Just wait until the Lord raises up somebody. Or better yet let that person rise up to the surface by doing the ministry without even having a title. And it's amazing. And we've done that before. We've seen people that they're just doing that ministry. And it's like, you know what? I think you'd be good at whatever it is. And, and uh, so let's give you that title because you're doing it. And so that's the best way to appoint people into ministry rather than a new person that just, hey, you're off the street. <laughs> you got a pulse? Hey, we'll put you in that leadership position. Um, and I think that's what happened with Timothy. I think you know, they, the elders just recognized what the Holy Spirit was already doing in Timothy's life, and so then they just ordained him and recognized, laid hand on him, prophesied over him. You know, and it was the Lord is already working in his life. I'm sure that's what it was. That's the best way uh, to appoint people into ministry. Verse 23 No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent. Infirmities. Again, you know, Timothy's this younger guy. He must have been stressed out a lot, stomach aches and stuff, and maybe he woke up at night a lot and <laughs> whatever. But uh, it's interesting because Paul earlier had told Timothy that pastors should not be given to wine. And now he's telling Timothy to use a little wine, and of course he's clarifying it's for medicinal purposes. Now, it's interesting, of course, people, go, hey, I'm using this for medicinal purposes. <laughs> um, You know, you think about Paul's ministry, and Paul was used by God in many cases. You read in the book of Acts to heal people, people raised from the dead. I mean, you know, just God mightily worked through Paul. And yet here in the case of Timothy, Paul's acknowledging that Timothy needs to just use some medicine for his frequent ailments. And, you know, the thing is, Paul wasn't the healer. God's the healer. God's always the healer. God does, in fact, heal, but it's always in his timing. Now, it may be immediate. I've seen it. I've prayed for a healing and it it happened immediately. It was amazing. Um, And and, and so, God does heal immediately, but he might wait 12 days. Maybe he'll wait 12 years. Remember the woman that had the flow of blood for 12 years and then, then the Lord healed her? Or it might be in the next age. It's always in God's timing. And it's always his method, too. You know, it might be a miraculous healing. But, you know, if you think about it, the very fact that the body is created to heal itself, I mean, that's a miracle in itself. You watch, I mean, just how the body restores. That's a miracle in itself. But, but the Lord can heal miraculously. He can heal through medicine, too. And we've seen that. Um, or he might just wait and give you a glorified body. I mean, it's up to him. God's the one who heals. And whether or not Timothy was healed miraculously through Paul's praying, or whether he was healed through the miracle or the medicine of his day, it's still God who caused the healing. God still gets the glory. God is still thanked for it. You know, using a little wine for medicine is clearly different than being given to wine. Let me give you an example. If we had a drug abuser who recreationally used narcotics, I'd rebuke them, right? Don't that you're sinning. Don't be using narcotics. You know, I'd be rebuking them. But if that same person went to the hospital and had major surgery, and they're put on a morphine drip, which is a narcotic, I'm not going to rebuke them. Why? Because it's, it's, they're me- receiving medicine. I think that's the same thing that Paul was trying to get across here. Um, you know, a couple weeks ago, uh, I was sharing, because we were talking about that passage where Paul is saying that a pastor shouldn't be given to wine and, you know, for me, I, I just shared with you guys, as a pastor, because I used to drink, but as a pastor, I don't want to stumble anyone by my drinking of alcohol. And if, if it's going to cause somebody to stumble, it's not worth it for me to drink, so I'm not going to drink alcohol. I also don't want to be under the influence of any spirits. Isn't that interesting they call it spirits? I don't want to be under the, any other influence than the Holy Spirit, so I don't need to be under the influence of spirits So as a pastor, I won't drink alcohol. Now, that's something you as an individual, as an individual follower of Christ, you need to come to terms with that in your own relationship with the Lord. Um, Do you have the liberty or not to? And and I'm not going to answer that for you unless it's a problem. You know, if if you're stumbling others because of your influence within the church, yeah, we're going to have to have a discussion. Um, I may need to talk with you privately and individually. But that's something each one of us has to work out. That's one of those areas that's to me personally it's not a salvation issue. But if you love people and you love the Lord, and if if it's causing people to stumble, why would you continue? Why not just why not just suffer, if you can call it suffering, you know. Verse 24 Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Again, the principle, man, if you don't address sin in your life, sooner or later your sin will find you out. So it's always best to bring it out into the light and deal with it rather than trying to leave it hidden because it's going to get exposed sooner or later. But the context of what Paul had just instructed, the context here is what Timothy was just told, I think, in verse 23. Can you imagine someone in Ephesus? They both go to the same church. They see they 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 come up to him and they go, hey, guess what I just saw? I saw Pastor Timothy leaving Apollo Liquor with a bottle of wine, you know. And now they're gossiping and they're 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 judging him and there's all this innuendo. And pretty soon there's this big you know strife and there's this big division in the church and they get split and they don't understand that Paul had told Timothy, hey, drink a little wine for your for your sore stomach, you know, to for, for medicine, you know. And so I imagine Paul's telling Timothy, son, because <laughs> he's older, um, you may get judged for drinking a little wine, but both of you and I know the reason behind it. Uh, don't worry about being falsely judged. You're going to be vindicated at some point. And again, that's my opinion there. Well, we'll continue our study in First Timothy next week. We're going to stop right there. and. Uh,